0: Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, July 29th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why it could take you months to get a new sofa. Kids are trying to get out of class by using soda to fake positive COVID tests. And how to reinvigorate your health with a micro adventure. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Alright, I've got another installment of the Shortage Report, and this time it's sofas. And tables. Basically any large furniture you might want to buy. Wait times for furniture orders are taking upwards of several months, and some customers are meeting a fate I used to think was a rare anomaly, half of their sofas showing up without its mate, which sometimes never turns up. The reason for the shortage is similar to a lot of the ones we've seen over the last year and a half. Increased demand as people renovate their spaces and buy new homes, a sort of unexpected outcome, at least in March 2020, when many industry leaders thought that they were headed into lean times, not one of their most in-demand periods ever. And the pandemic causing reduced staffing as well as supply chain shortages. In particular, the big lumber shortage I've mentioned a few times has adversely affected the furniture supply chain. But there's another shortage that's really impeding manufacturers' ability to make sofas. It's one whose source has been causing a number of other shortages, but the particular supply is one I hadn't realized. It stems from the big winter storm in Texas earlier this year. Quoting Slate, In February, freezing winter storms caused widespread power grid outages in Texas and other southern states. Apart from leaving millions of people without heat and electricity, the inclement weather also knocked out several of the country's major producers of propylene oxide, a main ingredient in foam. Those factories are still recovering, and foam manufacturers haven't been able to provide sufficient materials for mattresses, couches, and chairs. There's foam rationing occurring, said Steve Georgi, who co owns the Georgie Brothers Furniture Showroom in San Francisco. The foam manufacturers are trying to give people what they can give give you something versus nothing but they're still operating at 60 or 70 percent of what factories need to be running at capacity. End quote. And from the Houston Chronicle, quote, Russ Batson, executive director of the Polyurethrene Foam Association, described the process of liquid chemicals turning into spongy foam as something akin to baking bread. In the industry, in fact, they refer to the slabs of foam that become seat cushions as buns. An inch or two of the chemical mixture, propylene oxide and isocyanates, is poured into a conveyor belt and by the time it gets to the end of the line has risen to four feet or more, End quote. Pretty cool stuff, but with 10-14% to of the annual petrochemical supply taken out this year as a result of the freeze, according to Lionel Basel CEO Bob Patel, it could be the end of this year or later before manufacturing and shipping is back on track. And like so much else, the shipping, not just of the furniture to the consumer, but more crucially of small parts of the furniture from overseas, has also caused a major headache. Quoting again from Slate, imports from Asia, China in particular, have been held up due to the pandemic and are soaring in price. Tim Fiori, who oversees manufacturing business surveys for the Institute for Supply Management, said, You don't have the air freight cargo anymore because you're not flying international flights, which used to fill up the bellies of the planes with high-value goods. The Washington Post reports that fees for shipping from Asia have quadrupled in some cases. Shipping containers are overbooked as many businesses are trying to restock inventories that were running low during the pandemic, and log jams are materializing at ports due to COVID outbreaks. In January and February, hundreds of dock workers contracted the coronavirus in Southern California, severely limiting the country's capacity to accept imported goods. An outbreak of the Delta variant in Guangdong in June has also had a global ripple effect, as the province is a massive shipping hub that handles 24% of China's exports. It's bad news for the furniture industry, which is especially reliant on imports from Asia. Everything has got something in it from Asia, whether it be a fabric or a metal clip or the whole bedroom set. There's nothing that's entirely made here, said Giorgi, who noted that virtually all of the metal clips in US sofas come from China. End quote. I hadn't thought before about just how many components go into a sofa, but it really seems like they're getting burned at every turn. Foam shortage, lumber shortage, inability to get components from other countries... It's a mess that is going to take a while to ease back to normal. But if you really want to get a couch and don't want to wait months to get it, here's a tip. Buy it off the showroom floor. So long as you don't care too much about the color or want any customizations done, you can go home with a couch that day. So this was a quick link that Jason shared over on cocky.org a little bit ago that I think is just wild. Apparently, kids in England are using soda and juice to fake positive COVID tests so that they can get out of class. Just another example of kids applying their genius in excellent, if not quite productive, ways. Mark Lorch, a professor of science, communication, and chemistry at the University of Hull, decided to figure out why exactly this works. Because, you know, apart from kids maybe skewing some of the data and causing unnecessary alarm about outbreaks at their schools, it is potentially concerning that something like Coca-Cola could trip the tests. First, you should know that these are lateral flow tests, or LFTs. In the States, they're more commonly referred to simply as rapid tests, as opposed to the PCR tests that can take a few days to hear back. At some cases, they're handed out for people to test themselves at home. They function a bit like pregnancy tests, with two lines appearing on the device to indicate the presence of the virus. But, of course, you're using a swab from your nose or throat, not, you know, pee. Lorch explains how the tests normally work in the conversation. Quote, If you open up an LFT device, you'll find a strip of paper-like material called nitrocellulose and a small red pad hidden under the plastic casing below the T-line. Absorbed to the red pad are antibodies that bind to the COVID-19 virus. They are also attached to the gold nanoparticles. Tiny particles of gold actually appear red, which allow us to see where the antibodies are on the device. When you do a test, you mix your sample with a liquid buffer solution, ensuring the sample stays at an optimum pH before dripping it on the strip. The fluid wicks up the nitrocellulose strip and picks up the golden antibodies. The latter also bind to the virus if present. Further up the strip next to the T for test are more antibodies that bind to the virus. But these antibodies are not free to move. They're stuck to the nitrocellulose. As the red smear of gold-labeled antibodies pass this second set of antibodies, these also grab hold of the virus. The virus is then bound to both sets of antibodies, leaving everything, including the gold, immobilized on a line next to the T on the device, indicating a positive test. Gold antibodies that haven't bound to the virus carry on up the strip where they meet a third set of antibodies not designed to pick up COVID-19 stuck at the C for control line. These trap the remaining gold particles without having to do so via the virus, and this final line is used to indicate the test has worked. End quote. So what is it about juice and soda that can trick these sophisticated tests? Lorch explains that the antibodies in the test are really particular. You know, they're meant to filter out stuff from your saliva like proteins, other viruses, and you know whatever you recently ate or drank, which could include soda and juice. So on the surface this trick is a bit of a conundrum. Lorch's theory is that it's the high acidity of juice and soda that's causing the antibodies to go haywire. Quoting again, The citric acid in orange juice, phosphoric acid in cola, and malic acid in apple juice give these beverages a pH between 2.5 and 4. These are pretty harsh conditions for antibodies, which have evolved to work largely within the bloodstream, with its almost neutral pH of about 7.4. Maintaining an ideal pH for the antibodies is key to the correct function of the test, and that's the job of the liquid buffer solution that you mix your sample with, provided with the test, end quote. With the pH of the antibodies thrown off by the acid, they essentially stop functioning correctly and lose their sensitivity to the virus. But then why does that consistently produce a positive result, as opposed to a negative one or just like a blank one? Lorch explains, quote, The immobilized antibodies at the T-line stick directly to the gold particles as they pass by, producing the notorious cola-induced false positive result, end quote. If parents or school officials are very committed to trying to catch fake positive tests, Lorch did try washing one of his fake cola tests in the provided buffer and it reverted to the correct negative result but perhaps the easier fix is one many schools in England are already doing, making students take the more reliable PCR test following any positive rapid tests. So sorry kids, you might get caught out, but hey, the PCR test usually takes at least a day for the results, so maybe you can still get out of that exam after all. There are many reasons that vacations are healthy for us. A change of environment, a break from routine, possibly a bit of rest, learning about a different place or culture, and it turns out experiencing a sense of awe is also good for our health. Quoting the New York Times, Researchers often describe awe as an emotion that combines an experience of vastness with both pleasure and a fear of the unknown. While many of us might consider these moments rare, ephemeral, and tricky to reproduce, a few scientists are finding that this reverence is a skill that can be cultivated and has remarkable mental health benefits. Awe basically shuts down self-interest and self-representation and the nagging voice of the self," said Dacher Keltner, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. That's different from feeling pride or amusement or just feeling good. It's like, I'm after something sacred." While the New York Times points to seeing things like the Grand Canyon as a hallmark example of experiencing awe, they also point to that research that awe can be recreated, which is good news as travel still isn't the best thing to be doing with the Delta variant on the rise in many places, I say as I'm literally traveling right now. But recreating a healthy sense of awe, which helps counteract anxiety and depression, according to the researchers, could come in the form of a day trip to do a fun activity. Some of the research included taking participants river rafting, or even smaller intentional practices that the researchers call micro awe experiences— These are things like staring at the reflective surface of water, or taking a walk with intention. In the research, they had subjects take photos on their walks, and they found, quoting the Times, relative to a control group, the awe-oriented participants reported greater joy and pro-social positive emotions. They also tended to smile more over time, end quote. And to me, these micro-awe experiences or micro-adventures sound a bit like the concept of flaneur, or Situationist International's Theory of Derive. Both in very rudimentary terms, basically walking through a familiar environment as if you were doing it for the first time. Relieving yourself of motives, not merely traveling from point A to point B, but taking in your surroundings and receiving them with, well, a sense of awe. Quoting again, the ingredients for micro awe are all around us. Dr. Keltner said to begin by looking at really small things, like a clover or an ant, and then pop up and look at big things. Go take in a view. Look at some trees. Stand next to a skeleton of a T. Rex. He said. Adventure is about curiosity, surprise, and getting away from familiarity, said Alistair Humphreys, who popularized the term in his book Microadventures: Local Discoveries for Great Escapes. If you're a regular runner, go cycling. If you're a regular hiker, go paddleboarding in a lake. It's more about disrupting your routine than knocking items off a bucket list. The more curious you are, the more you start to see, he said end quote. So if you think you may want to inject more of a sense of awe in your life, the New York Times has some recommendations for micro-adventures. Try geocaching, or camping, or even just sleeping under the stars in your own backyard if you have one. Go out for a walk or bike ride at a different time of day or night than you usually do. Ride public transport all the way to the last stop, and then find your way back. Climb a tree. Literally. Literally. Just climb a tree, why not? And I love this suggestion, do a food 5K or 10K. Basically, pick a race-based distance and then pick out a bunch of stops for food along the route. Pizza, donuts, ice cream, whatever. Sounds like an awesome idea that I definitely wanna try. And my personal suggestion, if you have a tendency to wear headphones anytime you walk or run or what have you, just try leaving them at home once in a while. You'll be amazed at everything you hear and notice. Definitely an easy way to create some micro awe and stay curious about the world around you. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.